0: Well, hello everyone. I am thrilled to be with you today, and I have a huge opportunity, and I'm honored to do it. I get to stand in for the founder of Luncheons for Life today. She had every intention of being here, but uh, grew really sick on Tuesday, and so she got on a plane before it got worse and escaped to her uh, home in Florida, and we just happened to be here as well, and so I feel very privileged to uh, get to carry her Uh, experiences today with you. So traditionally she opens up with sharing a little bit about how Luncheons for Life started, and uh, it's a perfect segue because I'm here representing Support After Abortion as their CEO. And if it wasn't for Luncheons for Life and Janine Marone, I wouldn't be standing in front of you, nor would my team. So uh, just to draw back a little bit about Janine, uh, Janine entered into retirement early, and she had a very successful career in the credit card industry. She is what I call a brainchild. She sees patterns that nobody else sees. She just has just a gift in that area. And she began to notice a pattern in her world that... People needed to network like she did in her work. She read an article uh, of a gentleman who had did something very similar to this in Louisiana and said, this is something we could get involved in. And so she began starting Luncheons for Life that way. And little did she know, she really kind of started it just because it, it sounded good and, and she didn't really have the whole God picture at the time. Um, but as she started saying yes to this big endeavor, it continued to grow. They, she now uh, has nine luncheons across the nation, and they are all run by marvelous people like Joan Kane. And uh, Joan Kane is also on the board of um, Support After Abortion, and of course, yes, Shannon too. And people that just want to connect their community to one another so that we can continue to grow the pro life movement. For so long, we felt like we were only in our own silos. And so, like you're here today, and others are gathering across the United States learning from one another so we can continue to work together. Uh, like one of my mentors says, you know, we're not supposed to be the whole dinner plate. Somebody's supposed to be the fork, and somebody's supposed to be the coffee cup, and somebody's supposed to be the plate. And for so long, I feel like we've all fell victim to trying to be all things to everyone. And when we come together like this, we're reminded we don't have to be. And that's her goal here, is that what strengths do you have? What strengths do you have? And what can we draw upon one another to strengthen the pro-life movement? And and so that's what she started upon. And as she began that endeavor, she had an opportunity to hear um, From our speaker today, Karen Barbito, her amazing testimony, her experience after abortion, and that began to awaken Janine to better understand that there was more than one victim in an abortion experience, that there was a mother, there was a father, there was other family members, there was a community, employers, and so on. And so she began with her analytical understanding and all of that brainchild stuff that she has in her exploring why more people weren't reaching out for help in our community in Southwest Florida after abortion. There was only about 10 people uh, attending our Rachel's Vineyard and Project Rachel combination. There was only a few people entering into our pregnancy center healing programs. And that was complex to her because she knew there was a million abortions happening every, every year. She knew there was this legacy of abortion that had happened over five generations and was pondering why more people weren't reaching out for help. And so, in her infinite wisdom, she hired Karen. And uh, Karen began this anecdotal journey of learning why more people weren't reaching out. What we thought was only meant for our Southwest Florida community quickly turned into something much larger. And you'll hear a little bit about that as I continue the story. And because she is so wise, she ended up um, saying, "You know, in addition to this anecdotal experience, we need research to support what is going on through the anecdotals. And uh, sure enough, the research supported everything that we were experiencing on the front lines. People, 90% of the national survey we conducted that was census-based, 90% of the folks impacted by abortion didn't know where to go for help afterwards. That's nine out of 10 people didn't know where to go. That's a huge number of people. So here we have a marketing problem, and then we began to understand, okay, so if 90% of the people don't know where to go, what what would they go to if they knew where to go? And 80% said, look, I'm not ready for a faith-based option initially. So we started looking at this, and Karen was experiencing this anecdotally, People that are carrying shame and secrets and silent and suffering often aren't ready for the message of hope that is found in our gospel, right? They're not ready for that. There's so much stuff they need to work through. And, uh, and we looked around and we said, you know what? The products being offered to those who've experienced abortion aren't what they're looking for. They were 95% of the time faith-based. We love those programs, but we were leaving a lot of women at that well. We were leaving a lot of men left to their own defenses. And so support after abortion was birthed in a very real way, knowing that our industry, the abortion healing industry, could offer a very innovative approach to the pro-life movement in that we know that 50% of abortions that happen every year, that's nearly 500,000 abortions, are repeat abortions. That That means there's a man or a woman who goes back into a clinic after they've already experienced abortion. So that means they're going back for their second, their third, fourth. Some of you might be like, that's egregious. And we know that it is, but it also, it, it models after what we know trauma to do. We know trauma repeats itself, we know generational patterns repeat themselves, and subsequently what we've been learning is that we are programmed, you know, we are a small group of people who think very similarly. But there is a world out there that doesn't think like us, and that is born into a world and they are instantly programmed with a chip that abortion is a pro-life, pro-choice issue only, or it is a religious issue only, and it never falls into the human heart. We can't see the person behind all of it of that. And so support after abortion is here helping us to understand that there is a human component helping the world to understand. Clinicians don't understand this. Clergy often don't understand this. Community service leaders don't understand. Pregnancy centers are missing it too. And it's not their fault. It's what our culture has programmed us to believe. And again, we we might be shocked by that because we're here in a like-minded capacity, but that is not what is happening around our world, and so we are enlightening people with a deeper understanding that abortion has to start with the human connection first. We've got to start talking about this with compassion out of the political realm and helping people understand. We have five generations now, five generations that are living among us that have experienced abortion as their way of life right, as their way of coping with a difficult situation, much like poverty and divorce, homelessness, domestic violence, you see these things all around you, anger, substance abuse, and so we are helping everyone we touch to really understand that there is somebody sitting at every single one of these tables right now who's experienced abortion and there's another person at each one of these tables that has known somebody to experience abortion and there's another person at each of these tables that has a family member that's impacted that might be currently experiencing the suffering related to abortion we've all been touched by abortion in our own ways and some of us are still carrying that secret because the world has not given us permission to land this 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 deep-rooted issue this deep secret and what I hope that you leave today with if you haven't already done this in your walk is that you would be a more soft place to land you would walk with deeper compassion and you would start conversations in a new and different way than maybe you ever have you would take a peek at your social media and how you're interacting with friends at the dinner table and perhaps instead of talking about that senator or whoever you're you're voting for perhaps you would say you know there's other people involved in this abortion experience than I've ever realized it's not just how I'm voting at the polls this year it's actually how I want to be present with each of you and if you've experienced abortion I'd love to hear about your experience and potentially connect you with support so we, we offer com- this compassionate message, this awareness. A lot of times it's an awakening. People are like, that makes so much sense. Why have I not thought about that before? Again, we're programmed. We don't know unless somebody brings this conversation or we personally experience or we know somebody that has. Secondly, we have realized that in our industry, we need to help leaders better connect with one another. Just like this luncheon is networking everyone together, we realized in the abortion healing community that we didn't have a vehicle to connect all of us together. So Support After Abortion is bringing all of the leaders together, providing best practice opportunities, and uh, can we conduct a monthly webinar where they connect with one another. They say, oh my gosh, I've been praying for this for the last eight years, I had no idea, and they're also being awakened to new truths. If I add this component to my program, perhaps I can reach 50 more people. If I speak this way to men, I can reach men in the abortion healing work. And then finally, our, our, our final C, we have three C's, is to become, a, to become a catalyst for people to be able to create the space to come in droves to our abortion healing industry, because we don't have the capacity. So if we have the compassion message, if we are collaborating as leaders, we ultimately would be able to build capacity to serve what we know right now to be 22 million people who, if they knew where to go for help after healing, would come out of the secrecy and the shame and find healing. What does that mean for us? If they find healing, they go back to their family and friends, and they offer that hope to them. And we could end 50% of the abortions if that began to take root. And so that's what we're out to do. We've exploded as an organization over the last three years since we started. And Karen is the big reason that we're here today. So I'm going to invite her up, and she's going to share her abortion experience with you and... uh, and really help you to understand why support after abortion needs to exist. She is my colleague, my friend, mentor. Hello everyone.
1: I'm really excited to be here with you today. You know, Lisa said so much in that 10 minutes that she just spoke. I hope you could absorb all of that. There was a lot of information in that. I'm really here just to tell you why abortion healing is necessary. I'm living proof of what can happen after you have an abortion. So I, I'm going to start before the abortion because I didn't, I didn't wake up. Okay, I got to be over here. Let me hold on to it. Sorry about that. I didn't wake up one day and say I'm going to have sex with a guy, get pregnant, and kill my baby. I didn't. And I'm sorry if I get a little um, direct. That just is kind of my style. So please don't let me offend any of you. It's just kind of my way. Um, I, I didn't think that. I just from a very early age, um, you know, we we, we receive messaging um, from our families in school, from our friends, and as children, we kind of, st- Internalize that. We make it about us, right? So a comment might be made, and that's what happened in my life. And I just knew instantly that I wasn't loved as much as my brothers were. I wasn't good enough. I was never going to be worthy. I was never going to be loved. All of this negative Im- messaging that I received and internalized. And I believed lies about myself. And as a result of that, I behaved in certain ways. I craved to fit in. I craved attention. I just wanted to be good enough, right? And so what I did is made a whole lot of bad choices. I lacked confidence, I had no self-esteem, I had no identity, so as I went through school, I um, was not gonna let you know that I had no confidence, so I appeared overly confident. Looking back on it, I would say it was more arrogant than confident, and um, I was a chameleon. I would be, do, and say what you did and said. Right? And so, it was unacceptable for me not to fit in with all the different groups that you experience in school. The smart kids, the athletic kids, the cheerleading, the popular kids, um, the band, things like that. And so, I would buy friendships because I wasn't easily accepted by those groups. And what I mean by that is that I lived a pretty um, you know, mid-class life. We had a lot of um, toys, and I grew up in Michigan, and we had an in-ground pool, which wasn't common back then. We had snowmobiles, and a four-wheeler, and a camper, and so I had a lot of cigarettes, my parents had a bar. I don't know how this ever happened, but the honest-to-God truth is that I somehow had a weed source, and I would roll joints and sell them at school. I mean, I'm just being honest with you here. and so. That's what I did. And everybody knew, including myself, that these people weren't my friends. It just appeared as if they were. And I lived a very shallow existence. And so when I graduated from high school, I went to the only college I ever wanted to go to, Michigan State University. Any Spartan fans in here? Come on, give me the green and white. Yes. All right, go Spartans. And so really early on, this is what kind of appears creepy, in today's day, but I went to college and really early on I was getting these secret admirer letters. Now, if your children get them today, you need to intervene because it would be creepy today. Um, But they were sweet. It was like, I saw you in class today and your sweater was really pretty. And this went on for months. And so I, the codependent in me, was falling in love with somebody that I'd never met. Because I'd never had a relationship of any meaning growing up in school. And um, he revealed himself to me in at, on a Valentine's Day dance in my in our dorm, and it was tiny. He was like a six foot four, three hundred plus pound African American. I loved him. I knew him. He was so popular and funny, and like he picked me. Like it doesn't get any better than this, y'all. So we were a couple. Shortly thereafter, we had unprotected sex. One time, I got pregnant. And you know, when I, I probably was too all too much in love to not, to not to back out of that relationship, but it never occurred to me until I got pregnant that my parents wouldn't approve of this relationship. My dad was a racist, and so I had my abortion because I wanted to protect that relationship because he's the only man, honestly, that I've ever really loved. And so I found out that I was pregnant on a Wednesday. I had this procedure on Friday and I was back in class on Monday. Problem solved until my parents found out about the relationship. Back then, you didn't have cell phones. So when you went home for summer break, you know you either mailed something to somebody that you wanted to communicate with, you didn't want to make a phone call because there would be a record of it, and they would, that would be questioned. So I would be at the mailbox every day before the mailman came, and I would read those letters and I'd hid them under my bed. Like how, Looking back at it, how stupid. That wasn't very well hidden, right? Like, so my parents found out and everything that i feared happened they made me go to another college tiny just came with me Um, they encouraged me to not see him which i just lied about and said that i wasn't and then after another year of being together i told my parents that this is who i wanted to be with and they disowned me everything i was afraid of so it all happened and i my baby isn't here today because of it right everything went downhill from there everything We eventually broke up because relationships very often struggle after abortion. Um, I came back home, we had gone to Europe and I came back home, went back to school full-time, was working full-time and Tiny wasn't pulling his weight and it created frustration and anger and resentment in our relationship and so I broke up with him. And my brother found out about it, who I was in communication with, and he told my parents and my parents invited me to come back home and I went. This was in like 1979. And we never talked about it until about three months ago when I asked my mom about it. She doesn't remember it. That breaks my heart. Because what does that say about the struggle and the issues and what she's trying to deny in that going along with my dad, saying that he doesn't have a daughter anymore? My mom is 90 years old today. And I'll tell you, if I hadn't gone through the healing that I've been through, I could have never had that conversation with her. I was too concerned about having her carry to her grave some regrets that she had. This woman over here told me, Karen, you can't be God in your mom's life. You gotta let God do the work in your mom that he wants to do in her. I could have never had that that conversation. I'm so grateful for it. So um, promiscuity, um, eventually married a man that I didn't really love because I wanted to have kids and he loved me. And so we tried to have children for five years, and I couldn't have kids. Man, it like knocked the wind out of me. Knocked the wind out of me. We tried to adopt. Um, in the 11th hour, that failed. We, she told us she was in labor, we drove up. I think I was out of the car before it stopped. I was so excited. I had the car packed weeks before she was due. And we went in, and she had changed her mind. That was worse than not being able to have kids. I can remember the ride home. It was so silent. It was deafening. That's, I checked out. That's when I checked out. I mean, it was just too painful. You know, I, again, this is graphic, but I can remember, distinctly remembering, I killed the only baby God had for me. All I ever wanted to be was a mom. And so I checked out, I started drinking. That was the only way that I could cope with it. I became a raging alcoholic. My husband started to, he always emotionally abused me, verbally abused me, but he started to physically abuse me. And for 11 years, y'all, I stayed. What does that say about how I felt about myself? I felt like I deserved the treatment that I was getting. Finally, got divorced. I'm gonna switch sides here just for a different angle. (laughs) See if I look different on this side, what do you think? Um, finally we divorced and I met another guy that I thought was nothing like my husband and he wasn't, he was worse, (laughs) he ended up being worse. You know, four months in, we started to live together again, that codependency, I just want you to hear, I was a raging codependent and that drove a lot of my unhealthy choices. When we find our value in someone else and we don't find it through God and within us, it's not a healthy situation. So I met another guy who um, was doing drugs, and I had smoked weed. I mean, I snorted a little cocaine throughout my life, but he introduced me to crack cocaine, and that was the end. One hit, and I was done. I've been sober and clean for 20 years, and I can remember that hit like it was yesterday. And um, so then I was off to the races. I mean, I had a good job at the time. I didn't keep that for very long because you can't get high all night long and then go to work the next day. Um, And so for four years, I was in my 40s. I just want you to picture this. I was in Rochester, New York, in my 40s, a white woman in the hood at 1, 3, 5 o'clock in the morning whenever buying crack cocaine. I didn't even know that world existed. I had never been pulled over let alone go to jail, because that's what eventually, ultimately happened. After four years, the money runs out. I started doing criminal activities, and I got caught and went to jail a couple times, and then finally was convicted uh, three of three felony counts. So I got five years um, felony probation, and I couldn't stay clean. I thought I really thought if the money ran out, I'd have to stop. But I didn't. I just find, found other unlawful ways of getting money. I would rip off drug dealers, I would steal from stores and fence it. You can fence anything if you want to. You really don't wanna know <laughs> the, the world that I experienced when I was a drug addict. So I couldn't stay clean and my probation officer said, if you don't stay clean, I'm gonna violate you and you're going to state prison for seven years. And I knew I couldn't do that. I would not make it in, that, in state prison. And so I went to rehab, I went to my, probably my ninth detox inpatient um, rehab, and it was in that rehab. And by the way, in all of these encounters with rehab, nobody ever asked me if I'd ever been pregnant. Nobody ever asked me. Shouldn't that be a question that's on an intake form? Shouldn't you find out if somebody's had some kind of reproductive losses that could be driving their conduct because of the grief that they've never moved through? And so finally, um, a case manager came up to me and said, Karen, you know, Don't take this wrong, but I think you might be a little codependent. How about if you take a look at this? And so it had like a three-sentence paragraph on the front defining what codependency was. I couldn't even read it, y'all. I would like hyperventilate. It was like I would sweat. It was like I was looking in my face in those words. I was so ripe for change. So that was the beginning. And you know, whenever you kind of declare that you want to change and you want to work through something, you know that the enemy is always going to test that, right? And so, somehow, the guy that I was with, who I wasn't with anymore, really, um, was in, he went to jail, and he wanted me to come bair- bail him out, where all of that codependency rose up in me. I was like a caged animal. I started to pack. I'm like, Karen, if you do that, you're going to get high again. You might die. Because I was ready to step off into the drug world. I couldn't straddle the fence anymore. It was ruining my high. I'm just being honest with you. So I said, Karen, you can't do that. So I'm running through this inpatient, looking for a counselor. I finally see this guy in an office. I ran. I didn't know who he was, he wasn't my case manager. I ran into his office, like ran into his office and said, stand between me and that door, don't let me go. Because everything in me right now wants to leave and if I do, I'm gonna get high again and I could potentially die. And he stood there. It took me about 30 minutes to come down from that flight response that I had and that changed everything. That was the beginning of the change for me forever. So I went from there to a halfway house. I hated myself. I had no identity. Here I am in my mid 40s and I said, "Okay, Karen, it's time for you to declare what kind of woman you want to be because I really hate you right now." And so, switching sides again. So, I I wasn't a, so let me back up just one second. When I had my abortion, I wasn't a believer. And that really doesn't matter because there's a lot of believers that choose abortion, too, because of the shame that they don't want to bring to their parents or their church, right? But I wasn't a believer. I I didn't even know what pro-choice was. It wasn't really a thing back then. I mean, it's become a real big thing now. But I wasn't pro-life. I didn't think of it as life. I was pro-me. It was the most selfish decision that I ever made in my life. I just want you to hear that because that's how many people enter into the decision process of whether they're going to have an abortion or not. It's fear-based. It's fear-driven. You're trying to fix a problem, right? And you don't understand the finality of it all. You can't go back. There's no going back, right? And that's what people grieve the most. So where was I? Somebody remind me where I was. Yes, okay. So I, you know, in recovery, people had told me about the love of Jesus, who I didn't know, but I believed that they believed. And so I went to the Bible to, to um, construct an identity for myself. And so I wrote, I'm, I'm not lying here, this is the absolute truth. I took pieces of paper and I wrote one word on them of everything that I hated about myself. Manipulative, bad mouth, envious all of that kind of stuff controlling and I would look up scriptures every day and I would add it to those papers I had them all over my walls and hanging from my ceiling. And then I spent a lot of time in Proverbs y'all. Right? And those were some of the first things that left. Like my mouth changed almost overnight immediately. I didn't speak the same way that I did before. God is good in that way. He knows how, in what order things can be let go from you, right? And then I didn't know what kind of I didn't know what God had to say about a godly woman so I studied that and that's where I developed an identity for myself it didn't happen overnight I didn't do it all I did was show up and do the next right thing that's what I've tried for 20 years show up and do the next right thing I had to be wickedly honest with myself because our minds can be really deceiving and I couldn't compromise If I was gonna compromise on anything, it was gonna take me back out. And up to about like three years ago when we had that, if you didn't have health care, you were penalized on your income tax, I'm gonna be honest with you, I spent three days going back and forth, seeing how much I was gonna owe and how much refund I was gonna get. I wasn't gonna get caught if I lied. But that, I couldn't compromise on that. So I ended up paying the government money. (laughs) Just to tell you that the struggle's not ever over, right? We have to be really vigilant because the enemy is just like sneaky, right? And so um, fast forward, I kind of coped with life. Um, I ran a ministry for the homeless and marginalized for many years. That's where I met Janine Marone back in 2014. That's where I shared my story for the first time at a Luncheons for Life, sitting next to the woman that was going to eventually be my boss, the executive director for a pregnancy center. And so I, I um, went to work for a pregnancy center. And it was the first time somebody said, have you ever been pregnant? And again, I can't compromise. So I said, yes. Have you had an abortion? Yes. Well, have you been through healing? Healing, what's that? Well, there's abortion healing programs. I said, no, I'm good. I've been in recovery. I've cleaned up my side of the street. I've taken responsibility for all the wreckage I created. I'm good. I got a relationship with God now. I'm good. I've made amends. And they said, well, we know you're good, but you have to go through healing. Man, I'll tell you what. I had no idea how not okay I was. I was not okay. I had believed lies about myself for decades. The biggest one was, I'm never gonna be a mom. I believe that. Today, I'm here to tell you, I am a mom. And I can't wait to meet my daughter. So since then, I mean, it's, you know, You can't have a transformational experience like that without wanting to help other people experience that as well. So that's been my mission for the last several years is to have people not struggle and do the things that I did for so long because you don't have to. Freedom is available. And listen, you don't have to lead with God because God shows up anyway. And I'll tell you, I've never in all, I mean, hundreds, thousands of people that I've worked with, I've never seen it fail. It's not a one and done necessarily. Healing is ongoing, right? None of us have arrived yet, right? And so I'm, I'm thankful for that, that God still is doing a work in me. And there's more to be revealed and there's more to be, um, you know, surrendered and things like that. But um, so that's why I'm here today. I want you to know why abortion healing is so important because I am not the person that I once was. And it's only because of the grace of God and that healing program, the several healing programs that I've gone to today. So now I'm gonna turn it over to Lisa, and she's gonna come up and talk to you. I mean, some of you may provide abortion healing, um, some of you may not. She's gonna give you the roadmap on how to um, talk to somebody and what you should do if somebody discloses to you that they've had an abortion. Thank you, Karen.
0: So I think it's really important that we just pause for a moment and we think back to that nineteen year old young woman. And had we had had our culture had the tools to speak to her, had all those substance abuse clinics and all those rehabs and all those social workers and case managers and clergy and all of the people that her life encountered, had we had a culture where she would know that there was a safe place to discuss that, how many few Fewer years she have suffered. We don't know, but we do know that nobody ever asked her, and so she spent decades carrying the weight of that. And she was prime time candidate for a, an abortion. Prime time. And I love what she said: was she didn't wake up and just say, "I can't wait to have an abortion today." She was desperate for love and attention. She didn't want to lose the relationship. She didn't want to lose her family. I mean, there were so many things, and she lost it anyways. And we see that often inside of the hearts and minds of those we serve. So we don't ever want you to leave a conversation like this without feeling hope, without feeling like you have action steps as a result. And so, hello. So um, I'd like to give you a four-step process that we've developed, specifically working with students for life, because when they knocking on people's doors. They were like, what do we do when people share that they've had an abortion? We were just there to offer them you know, insights as to what abortion clinics and pregnancy centers were around here. Um, so the first thing we always suggest, and I'd like you to bring this back to whomever that you would, would touch your life um, connects with, resources on our website, supportafterabortion.com. It's a very simple four-step process. Each one of you can do it. There's people in your life that need you to do this for them right now. First step is where are you showing up with stereotypes? Where have you been programmed to see abortion political realm in the religious realm? And how is that seeping out of you? Are you somebody, when you think of your political direction or your religious direction, also think about the person behind the experience? When you go to repost that social media thing on Facebook or you go speak to somebody, your neighbor, or community event or whatever, do you also, before that thing comes out of your mouth, do you also think about the person that you're talking to or the person that might be hearing you? Perhaps that's a challenge for some of you in here today, that you've never, like me, listen, I I was a clinician for 15 years before a mental health clinician, working with sex trafficking survivors and teen moms and all the sexual function you could think of, and I never once put it together that abortion hurt people. I thought I was the only one, and as I began doing the same kind of inner, you know, understanding, I said... Whoa, there's more people like me than I even know. And you're probably sitting in here today. I never thought of this. Abortion healing has always been that compassionate thing that I think about after I talk about my stance on abortion. So we wanna first examine our stereotypes. How does your family see you? Perhaps you have a grandchild or an aunt or another family member who is pro-choice or has already experienced abortion. How do they see you? Do they see you as someone safe? You can have your beliefs, but are you a human beyond that? Are you? Do you have emotions beyond that, right? Our political view is a stance, but how are we being? As a person, God doesn't call us to be a stance. He calls us to be a connection. He calls us to be a person that loves like he did, like he does. So where are we landing with our stereotypes? The second place is once those stereotypes start to change and we stop seeking out that toxicity, we want to use best practice language. We do not—yesterday it was said so well at our training— we do not want to pity people. We do not want to pity people they already have pitied themselves for years. We wanna meet them with love and compassion, and the best thing you can say to somebody once you become a safe place is to say, I am so sorry for your loss, period. I'm not saying I'm so sorry for the loss of your baby. I'm not saying I'm so sorry for the loss of your life, the life, I'm not saying any, I'm just stopping. Because they have lost so much and they don't even know what they've lost. They know that they're hurting, but they have no idea. So we wanna experience them in a way that shows love and compassion and validates their experience. Because if we land with a, that must have been so hard. You know, I mean, can you just imagine what somebody like Karen would have said to you? I mean, I can't say the words she probably would have said, right? No crap! They don't need that. They need to hear that we're sorry for their loss. And perhaps you might then say, you know, you're not alone. There's a lot more people in this world than you realize who have experienced something similar to you. Stop. After that, you have no idea what's going on, even if there is no change in their body or their facial structure, you have no idea what you just did that person because you perhaps might have been the first person that ever allowed them to share their experience with any sort of judgment, and indeed you validated that they did have an experience. Because what we hear often from men and women who've experienced abortion is that the pro-choice side is saying get over it, and the pro-life side is saying I'm a murderer, where the heck do I land? And so by being there with them, with that compassionate understanding, you are validating that they do belong somewhere. And then perhaps, if it fits the situation, you might ask them, would you like to share your experience with me? Can you just imagine somebody who's held this secret, like Karen did, 40 years? Or the girl who just experienced abortion in the bathroom at her parents' house, and you offer her, you offer Karen, you offer the gentleman who didn't have a choice in the pregnancy, the the termination, you you don't know what the story is, but you then give them space, space to feel like they matter, space to feel like their story matters. And then we would advise you to then offer them an opportunity to reach out for support. Don't leave them hanging. And you, unless you offer an abortion healing program, are not the place for them. Don't try to be all things to them. At Support After Abortion, we have a beautiful opportunity to navigate this with them, where we empower them to make their own choices for healing, whether they want to do a face-to-face, a Bible study, a one-on-one with a therapist. If they want to continue a text message conversation, we meet them right where they are. So you don't have to. And then we bring them back to the community if they want to with the partners that we have that we're collaborating with. Uh, Heidi's going to hold up a card that we have that's at this table. She's in the back here. Um, If you want to pick this card up so that you have it with you, I also want to share some of the other resources that are at the table. We have these small business cards, and these are our most popular. You can leave them in the bathroom of your churches. You can leave them anywhere go. You can deliver them when you're on the sidewalk, wherever. Maybe you're going to your book study after this, or this weekend you have an event, and you can bring this topic up in a way maybe you never have, and you say, gosh, I heard this really amazing um, woman speak about her abortion experience, and I just feel like I've missed the mark, and I want to do something about it. I want to share with you this resource. This is pivotal information. I mean, again, we are a small group of people that are like-minded. There's a world out there that doesn't understand that there's help out there, that we will actually talk about abortion as a human issue with compassion. But we can start here, and when you go back to your community and affect three people, and then you, they affect three people, and then they get into the family that only feels like abortion is the only option, or it's been terrorizing them for years with substance abuse and gambling and codependency, you can be that light by starting this conversation, not with people that know the conversation, but with people that may not be open to it, my favorite thing when I was at the pregnancy center is that I got to build bridges. I had pro-choice people all the time say, "I can't get behind the work that you're doing at the pregnancy center, but I can get behind that pro that that pro-healing work that you're doing." Why not start there? Let's be bridges, right? Let's stop choosing sides and let's be that bridge so we can bring people to the to the light and and help them understand that healing is part of that process. So Um, I spoke about men, and I just want to touch on this for just a second because we feel like we are landed on a gold mine with men. Our research shows us that men are actually more willing to reach out for help after abortion. 35% more, in fact. They're hungrier for help, and they're willing to talk about their experience a lot more than women are right now. One of the stereotypes perhaps you have in this room is this is a woman's only issue, and you didn't even know it until I brought it up, that this has always been the woman, the baby, right? But men are hurting too. We have villainized men, and I have as well, that they are the reason that women are experiencing abortions. In fact, our research says something very different. Half of the men experiencing abortion felt like they didn't have a voice in the pregnancy decision or sorry the abortion decision that's significant if you think about it we already have a struggle demasculating our men right and now we're taking the opportunity from them to be parents and many women because they struggle with the same issues that karen did don't even give men an opportunity to have a conversation with them they make the decision i just spoke to a woman she said i don't even really want to tell my husband because i know what he's going to say and i don't want him to influence me right? So something to be very, very um, connected to as you're continuing this new understanding that it's not just a woman's issue, that men are a huge part of this journey. And can you just imagine if men really find that healing, that they're empowered to be the leaders that they were created to be? I guarantee you women would stand in line to follow them. Guarantee it. They're waiting for it. So, um, I'm just really privileged to be here with you. Thank you, Karen, for everything you did today. Please visit the table. Do not leave here unresourced today. Um, again, our website is supportafterabortion.com. So, we're going to open it up for questions, um, and we have to stay connected to the microphone, so, and up here. So, just speak loud, and we'll repeat the question for the camera.
1: We're going to let anybody ask them questions first before we pass the mic. You can then we'll pass the mic. No, you you're going to. Ask oh, okay. yes.
0: Okay, yes, Uh, ma'am.
1: Would you repeat the four items
0: that you mentioned to us, like what to say if somebody
1: would say they had an abortion? Yes. So the
0: question is, can I repeat the four steps? And I'm going to ask Heidi to resource you because we have them written down. The first step is to analyze your stereotypes. Where are you standing on on the topic of abortion? How is your messaging communicating your heart? Um, The second one is to use best practice language. I'm so sorry for your loss. You're not alone. The third step is then to further ask if you would like to share your experience with me. I'm I'm prepared to sit here with you. And then the fourth one is, um, do, you, do you want to be referred to support? And then to refer them to support after abortion. You. You're welcome. Are there any other questions? By a show of hands, how much of this is new material for you? So it's something you learned today. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Thank you. Good stuff. All right. Anything else? Any other questions? Thoughts? Yes, ma'am. Another question. Do you want to? I wouldn't have
1: that conversation, you know what I mean? I don't want to debate over your political, I'll repeat the question, how do you, um, discuss, how do you interact and create a relationship with somebody that has a d- d- different political view than you, that are pro-choice and perhaps you're pro-life? I don't think I'd even have that conversation. I don't need to know what your political stance is. I just want to hurt, help you because you're hurting emotionally.
0: So she's continuing to say, well, they haven't had an abortion, but they're still very much pro-choice. I would respond to that with just saying, you know, regardless of your political beliefs, there's 25% of the childbearing age is impacted by abortion. And we know, and I've heard personal stories of women who've been impacted by abortion and men that have been impacted by abortion. And to me, I just really want to help those people. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. See, the last thing we want to do when we're in a conversation like that is go baby, right? It's, it, it, it just takes, it, it's not what we, and it's what we've been trained to do, but it's not the conversation at hand. They want to hear that you, you care about the woman and you do care about the woman. And so there's lots of other conversations that can happen, but in this abortion healing realm, we would, I would often turn to. I've heard so many of my friends, their experiences after abortion have been so difficult for them. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. Okay, so how do we negotiate relationships that are super close to us who may be uh, choosing abortion or have chosen abortion?
1: That's tough. I mean, that's really tough. Again, it's about, um, it's not about us. It's about them, right? We've had mothers come in who've had young children that have, like 15 years old, had abortions and the mom didn't want her to have one. Um That's a tough thing to navigate. I would encourage you to um, be open and honest in your dialogue, to not try to pressure, to not have an agenda. Young people know if you have an agenda, if you're trying to convince them to do something that they don't want to do. And I would just keep the dialogue open and continue to say how much you'll support them. Um, Do you have anything to add to that?
0: Yeah, I think the first thing that we need to do is be honest with ourselves. If this is painful for you to watch, you want to be honest with yourself and you want to make sure that that pain is being distributed on the right person. We don't want to bring that pain to the person who's already in pain. We want to bring the pain to somebody who can handle our pain, a clergy member, a a therapist, another friend. And then we want to go with them with honest selves forward. Like, I don't agree with this decision, but I am still here for you no matter what decision you make. And I'm not going to change Throughout that, if you can commit to that, I'm not going to be somebody different before the decision and somebody after the decision. I'm going to look at you no matter what, no different than if your child just had a divorce or your child is struggling with substance abuse or some sort of financial issue. We tend to look at abortion as separate than all those things. We know how to do those other things really well, don't we? We know how to sit with our family members when they're having an issue in their marriage. We know how to sit with people when they're having financial issues. But we look at abortion so differently but it's one of the symptoms of these deep roots that people are struggling with so um, lean into that as part of your maybe processing yes sir this is the last question yes sir in short no uh, the question was is um, are licensed professionals being trained, and that's clinicians, clergy, social service workers, about the need for abortion healing and the impacts of abortion. And as a clinician, I've come from a secular university, I was never trained. In fact, I brought it up to my alma mater probably six or eight years ago, and she said, we, we grouped that with grief and loss, and she moved on from that. So we know most of our universities believe in reproductive justice and are not equipped to handle this conversation. So what Support After Abortion has done, we've partnered with Greg Hassock. We have a clinical webinar that we do once a month, and we're also partnered with Robin Atkins, who is a, a mental health professional on APLOGS board. That's the American Association of um, pro-life, uh, obstetricians, and they are, um, producing a reproductive grief and loss training for clinicians that should be um, launched in the next couple of months. So we've contributed to that. And uh, and so that's how we're answering the need. But it's a very huge disparity. And in fact, we've even created intake forms for clinicians because they're not even asking the question. We've also written a white paper. The There's an ethical and moral responsibility that every clinician, and I mean medical, mental health, if you're a nurse, if somebody's presenting with suicidal ideation, depression, substance abuse, we have research that connects abortion to those issues. And if you're not asking on your intake form, if somebody has experienced an abortion you're at, or abortions, you're actually not walking with ethics or in your legal responsibility. So um, we're also pushing that white paper out. Wonderful question. Thank you.